0: You're listening to Life of the Record, where artists look back on the making of a classic album. My name is Dan Nordheim. Dean Wareham formed Luna in 1991 after the breakup of Galaxy 500. Upon signing with Elektra Records, Dean Wareham brought in Justin Harwood, formerly of The Chills, on bass. Next, former Philly's drummer Stanley Dembski joined, and Luna released their debut record, Luna Park, in 1992. In 1993, Luna expanded to a four-piece, as Sean Eden joined on guitar. They released Bewitched in 1994, followed by their third album, Penthouse, in 1995. In this episode, Dean Wareham talks through the making of Penthouse on its 25th anniversary.
1: This is Dean Wareham, and I'm here to talk about the making of Luna's Penthouse album. Penthouse is probably my favorite Lunar record. I mean, there's things I like on every record, but I think it's the one where it all kind of gelled to us. Never quite sure why that is, why some records turn out better than others, but it's not a question of effort or attention. You know, if people could make a great record every time, they would. I feel like some bands, their first record is their best and they just get worse from there. But um, I feel like with Luna, our first album, Luna Park, we weren't really a band yet, because I had signed to Elektra and then I brought Justin in and then we'd written the songs and then Stanley came in. But we hadn't been gigging together. And then um, the next one, Bewitched, felt more like a band. But this one, Penthouse especially, so it just seemed like we really, honed in on what it was that luna was all about
2: in the tiny tiny hour
1: the record really in, in two sections about four weeks with an engineer named Mario Salvati at a studio called Sorcerer and we picked Mario because we liked the television reunion album that he had done it's his work with Tom Verlaine. you're coming out of the 80s so I think sometimes the sounds you look for are a reaction against what came before I think what we were trying to do with Luna is make sort of natural sounding records that is you know get away from gated reverbs and just the big sounds of the '80s, which is sort of why we picked Victor Van Vught to do Bewitched too, because his stuff with like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds sounded sort of natural to us, and and that Television album, we thought sounded great. So, we started with Mario. The first thing we did, now that I think back, we recorded an EP with Mario. Just a few tracks. We said we'll try a few tracks to we'll see how it goes, and we recorded Chinatown. Bonnie and Clyde, the um, Serge Gansberg song, and Thank You for Sending Me an Angel, the cover of that Talking Heads song. That EP, we listened to that, we're like, oh, this is the best thing we've done as a band. We were allowed to go back. You know, when you're signed to a major label, there's always a discussion over who's going to make your record. But A&R guy Terry Tolkien kind of let us do what we wanted. Fancy drinks and lucky toasts Chinatown is, uh, at least partially, written about Terry Tolkien. The lines, you're out all night chasing girlies. You're late to work and go home earlies, which I know is a spectacularly bad rhyme. It annoys some people, but I, <laughs> I kind of like it. I like Edward Lear a lot, who's you know one of the pioneers of the limerick, and a, a guy who invents his own words. Yeah, Chinatown, I guess it's just sort of about, it's a, maybe what you might call a drinking song. It's about being out on the town. Justin came up with the chords and the riff, that ba 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 ba, ba 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 So that one, uh, Chinatown, is really a, a Harwood Wareham composition. a couple of months, we were back again at uh, Sorcerer's Studio, which was on Mercer Street, just above Canal. And there used to be a lot of recording studios in Manhattan. Now, so many of them are gone. It was a cool place. Um, they sort of had a whole building there in Soho. they got a big studio in the basement, but we were mostly in the B Studio, which was way up top. Sideshow by the Seashore, that one is a super cool riff that Sean came up with, with a bent note on the whammy bar. It took a long time to record that one. I'm thinking <laughs> We've got a theremin in. None of us knew how to play the theremin, but Justin sort of figured it out. Sideshow by the Seashore was a club. Well, before it was a club, I guess it was what you would call a freak show out in Coney Island. In the late 80s and early 90s, a friend of mine put on uh, Friday night shows out there, in indie rock shows, and people would go out there. And one time I was doing a, a solo set, and I, anyway, there was this huge, uh, huge storm, and um, everyone had to come in off the boardwalk, and there's a lyric in there about that. An electrical storm has caught us in a trap. It really is a tongue twister, as is Sideshow by the Seashore. When you're used to hearing a song a certain way and then you hire someone to mix it and they throw stuff out or they add things, sometimes it's just a, a period of, of adjustment while you get used to it. Because it's difficult at first, you really you, you, you expect to hear the, the song the way that you had it in your mind. But that's why you hire those people, I think. There's another version of Sideshow by the Seashore that's mixed by Mario Salvati and that's, that's a rough mix. It's got a lot more of Sean's extra guitars. It has like, you know, five guitar tracks that have extra stuff. When Pat came in to mix it, he was like, no, I just want to strip it down to that one riff and I'll have that double. That's the best thing about the song is this... over and over again. So no, he didn't loop it, but he just focused on that and then he brought in the theremin. He said, let's get a theremin. That would be a cool sounding thing. And... It all worked out in the end. we decided to bring Pat McCarthy in to mix the record because your record company, they always want, if they're trying to get you on a radio, they think, well, we should bring in someone to mix it who's mixed songs that have been on the radio. Pat had mixed that Counting Crows hit, and I guess T-Bone Burnett produced, he'd worked with him and he'd worked with you too. Um, Pat came in, and I think for the first time in my life, I was sort of pushed, I had produced it saying like, not just like, oh yeah, that's good, let's let's move on, but like, no, do it again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. He had me re-sing a lot of things. Pat Pat's thing was like, well, I'm not just here to mix the record. I'm here to help you finish the record. And yeah, you know, I think he did an amazing job with this record. The attention to detail, just I had never worked that slowly before, that agonizingly. But you know, he would sit there for just hours, just adjusting, tweaking the vocals on each syllable, just making sure that it sits exactly right. Um, My early recording experiences are with Kramer at the helm, where it was always like one take, like, next, that's it. And you're like, well, I made a mistake. He's like, I like the mistake, we'll leave the mistake. Whereas Pat McCarthy would sort of be like, if there were like eight bars or something, he'd like, well, he did one and three are really good, but two's a little wobbly.
2: dreams for you They'll all be gone tomorrow Pull me a face and say something witchy It's time to get out
1: of your bed Moon Palace. I have a version of that with different lyrics, but I, th- I think I've destroyed it. I didn't like it. <laughs> When we left Sorcerer, I did not have, uh, maybe I had the chorus down, but I did not have the verses down. And at any rate, I was going to have me re-sing it. Moon Palace was named for the Paul Oster book that I was reading at the time, Moon Palace, which he named for a Chinese restaurant. Yesterday on Twitter, I saw that David Chang of Momofuku has opened a restaurant called Moon Palace and someone's asked him, have you done this in tribute to the Luna song? And I happen to know he's a huge Luna fan, so I'm thinking maybe he did. Give me a slug. I'm not sure what this song's about. Maybe it's another drinking song, but it also references one of my heroes, Christopher Boyce, the Falcon in The the Falcon and the Snowman. You got no choice, feel like Christopher Boyce, is the lyric. One of my earliest political experiences, before I had moved to New York, I was living in Australia. I was like 12 years old. The Australian government was sort of ousted in murky circumstances with the help of the Queen's representative and also apparently the CIA doing all this stuff. Anyway, I referenced Christopher Boyce. He worked at TRW and he discovered that the CIA was trying to destabilize the Australian government and overthrow them. He started sneaking secrets out of TRW in a potted plant. With his help of his Coke dealer friend, he, 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 they went down to Mexico and were selling secrets to the Russians. Of course he got busted and put in jail and escaped from jail, famously. He's now out again, he's free and he's still into loves working with the birds, the Falcons, that is. You've
2: got no choice feel like Christopher. We're all making sense
1: Moon Palace is one of my favorite Luna songs, it features a um, great guitar solo by Tom Verlaine. Mario said he could get Tom in to play on the record if we gave him some of our studio time, so that was the deal we did. Tom liked to work late, so it really didn't matter. He'd come in at 10 p.m. and work for hours. He plays on Moon Palace and he plays, uh, you know, long guitar solo on 23 Minutes in Brussels. It's great listening to him play. He's, he doesn't use any pedals or any tricks, it's just his fingers and the, the Stratocaster or Jazzmaster or whatever he's playing. He uses um, the volume knob, he sort of swells, but whatever he's doing, it's, you know it's him immediately. It's just, he's a unique player. Which I think is the highest compliment you can pay a musician, really. Not that they can shred, well, that's a different kind of compliment. Not that they can, you know, do incredible things at high speed, but that they have a sound that only they have. The technology, and then in the 90s, it was kind of the worst. I mean, the best, the best at the time, but you had these—you uh, you would have a uh, 24 tracks, and then you would have another 24-track machine slave to it, so you could have extra tracks, 48, and they would sync up. But sort of slowly, it's kind of clumsy, or it uses a lot of tape. And with Pro Tools now, obviously, you can see things as well as hear them, so I think it's a lot easier to go in and fix things, or, or maybe if, you know, you had to do something, you needed eight bars to be perfect, you could just take a couple of an hour and, and loop them. But back then that was all a lot more difficult to do. So it's uh, painstaking. Even comping a vocal was, was sort of a painstaking. Comping means, you know, you sing like three or six or twenty takes of the vocal, and then you go through and pick out the best line from each and make a composite. When you're pushing buttons on tape machines, it's a pretty slow thing. And Pat was very good at it. But when i having to go in and pick out maybe, I like this syllable here. And now, as I say, it's just so easy because it's all on a drop-down menu in front of you. You just pick out the syllable you want to cut and paste it. I know a lot of young bands now who are obsessed with tape. And for those of us who recorded in the 90s, we're over it. feature. That took a long time in the studio too. That's very different on the, the version that's on the Penthouse Deluxe you can hear. A wholly different drum track. Pat was mixing that. Yeah he had Stanley come back and redo the drums. He had me and Sean playing bass on it too. He wasn't happy with the bass lines so there's three different people playing bass and I think we were kind of like what is he doing? It's, it's so much better than our uh, than the rough mix of it. It really came to life. We, we actually had a gig the mixing was taking longer than we anticipated, actually. We, had, we thought it was going to take two weeks, you know, maybe a, a day per song. But. So we went we had a gig up in Boston, and we left Pat. We're like, okay, you're doing double feature by the time we come back, you know, you'll be finished with double feature and you'll have something else up. So we came back on Sunday. He was still working on it. I
2: don't know why.
1: But you can hear all that work. Cool stuff in there, strange sounds. I think it starts with this weird sound that, that you hear sometimes of one tape machine catching up with the other tape machine with the, as it slows down, which sort of makes a weird. Listen to that. The chimpanzees, yes, we listened back and uh, I have seen the chimpanzees. That's, you know, I'm talking about going to the zoo. <laughs> And when that line goes by, Pat was like, do you hear the chimpanzees? And I was like, yes, I do, actually. Been in... I don't even know what that sound is. I know it's not chimpanzees, but it could be. Who am I going to be? What am I going to do?
2: I've been fooling everybody. I've been uptown at the zoo. I have seen the chimpanzees in the afternoon sun. Quiet in the steakhouse And my legs
1: are turned to jelly I don't know why Generally, we would do probably three or four takes of a song. We would do a take. Our drummer, Stanley, would often check it on the metronome as we were listening back, just wanting to know for himself that he hadn't fluctuated. We did not play to a click. Again, this is pre We were not using Pro Tools, so now everybody does everything to a click, but uh, we rarely did anything to a click. We didn't need to. We had Stanley. I love playing Friendly Advice and 23 Minutes, some of the long ones. We do play these songs a lot. 23 Minutes in Brussels, I must have played 2,300 times. No, I I don't know. I played it a lot. That song, I took the title. It's an interesting trick for songwriting. You steal someone else's title and you write your own song around it. Or take someone's first line and write your own song about it. But um, 23 Minutes in Brussels is a a bootleg album of the band uh, Suicide opening for Elvis Costello in Brussels. The gig lasts 23 minutes. They're booed off the stage, someone steals their microphone, and they <laughs> I think this happened to them a lot as they opened for Elvis Costello or, or for the Cars. Rick Ocasek was a huge fan and produced their record, but <laughs> they would stand out there and start playing their music and people would throw stuff at them. They just projected something on stage that was like dark and, and confrontational, I think. 23 Minutes in Brussels. There's not a lot of lyrics in there, really. But I think sometimes those are the best kind of lyrics. A haiku or just things that repeat instead of, like, uh, tugboat or whatever. It's just a few, just that Galaxy 500 song, it's just a few lyrics, but it's evocative. I had come up with a riff, the that... Stanley and Justin made a great contribution, too. I mean, that's the thing. It's I feel like 23 Minutes in Brussels... If someone else came to do it, I'm like, well, it's not that great a song, but it's a great performance and it's a great groove. And so it's, it's all about what you do with it collectively rather than what it would be if someone sat there with a piano and, and played that song. It's not a particularly beautiful song. Say a prayer. So I play a little solo at the start of the song, and maybe uh, I guess I play one in the in the middle too, a shorter one. But mostly it's it's uh, it's Tom Balen. He's got that little tease, and you can tell him again. And it's sort of that sound that he's using the the volume knob with his pinky, just sort of swelling into it. Um, sounds like him. He uh, pays a lot of attention to guitar tones. He's sort of got like I you know, had a little suitcase full of tubes or whatever he knows about, old, like different tubes and their characteristics. 23 Minutes in Brussels was actually originally even a bit longer than this, but um, Tom Bolane said that it's like, I think you might improve this if you trim the guitar solo a little bit. So maybe we laughed a minute out of there. You can hear the longer version again on Penthouse Deluxe. I think we titled it 24 Minutes in Brussels. He did a few takes, but he knew exactly what he was doing. He really did. He was sort of like, well, back me up. Stop, back me up like 40 seconds. Punch me in exactly here where you go to this. And he was really quick with it. Tom played that guitar solo, and he even he was like, yeah, that was good. I thought was a good one. We were all kind of dazzled by it. ¶¶ Side two, well, you know, really we didn't plan this as side one and side two because this is the the CD era, the compact disc era, so we just thought of it as sequencing the ten songs. But now side two uh, kicks off with track six, Lost in Space. It's a beautiful sounding song. Okay, so sonically, I think that what's really cool on that is the Mellotron and also a lot of stuff that Sean's doing on the Whammy Bar where Pat would slow the tape machine down to half speed and have him play this bend, double that with having it in, in real time. I mean, you know, maybe you can hear that Pat worked with you too. You can hear that sort of stuff in there, that atmospheric. You know, we went on to make another record with him and he always wanted to be something else going on just besides a rock and roll quartet bashing out their songs. You learn from everyone you work with. That's why it's good to work with different people.
2: You heard it all before
1: I spend more time on vocals. You don't want to sound too soft, and you don't want to sound too hard. You don't. So you don't want to sound mean, but you don't want to sound sap. You want to be somewhere right in between. And sometimes I'll do a vocal, and I think it's really great. And then I listen later, I'm like, oh no, that's too. There's too much emotion in that. I'm too, like trying too hard to, to sell it. I have to go back and strip some out of it. But I think Lost in Space hits that sweet spot, or it's in a good register for me. It's delicate but hopefully not too delicate.
2: And you know there's something else But you can't give it a name Someone's selling all your heroes And it seems such a shame
1: Rhythm King. Rhythm King is named for the drum machine my friend Angel gave me called the Maestro Rhythm King. I had this uh, video at home made by James Burton, the guitar legend, showing all his, uh, his tricks. He played with, uh, he was Elvis's band leader, played with um, Ricky Nelson on that TV show. You anyway, know, amazing guitar player. I could never get close to his... <laughs> I could never play anything like that. He's incredible. They had this one riff on, I don't even know what song it's on, but it's the riff that opens Rhythm King. We had Stanley double that on the vibraphone. Stanley is a trained percussionist, he could play the vibes too. <coughs> what this song's about either, where well, I take a dig at the dead, Richard Nixon, while well, not an overtly political album, I do mention both Richard Nixon and Christopher Boyce, so I try and get these things in here without hitting people over the head. But again, Rhythm King is probably another drinking song. I don't mean drinking heavily, I they a heavy drinker, I just mean going out at night. It's about someone who's um, actually, whose girlfriends have gone out for a drink without him, I think. If it's about anything. Your
2: girlfriend's met for cocktails
1: Leaving you behind
2: Giggles round the table
1: I say that about Penthouse too, Why I like Penthouse more than Bewitched. I think the lyrics are much better on Penthouse than they are on Bewitched. Maybe we were rushed into Bewitched. Maybe I was just smarter by then, better, for whatever reason. It's a better group of songs, I think. The lyrics and the music evolve separately, and then, like, I've got lyric ideas on, you know, on one side of my brain and musical ideas on the other, and then the difficult thing is pulling them together trying to squeeze your clever thoughts into a song. I guess, really, the first thing is the, is the melody. That's the way that we would write in Luna. We would sort of jam together, and I would start singing a melody. And then once that's stuck, then you have to cram the words into the melody. That's the way I do it anyway. It's difficult. <laughs> It's interesting. Sometimes I think there are albums I love or songs I love and I listen to them. And if you ask me to tell me what the lyrics were, I'd be like, I have no idea what the lyrics are. <laughs> but it, it doesn't matter. It matters if they're horrible. It matters if they're really bad. But, well, sometimes there's one really clever one that sticks with you that you love. But they don't have to be great all the way through, I think, from beginning to end. Because you got the music to help you along. Kalamazoo, well that grew out of, it. of an instrumental piece I had done for my wife at the time had made a short movie called Kalamazoo and I did the music for it. So I had this piece called Kalamazoo. On slide guitar, I'm kind of a clumsy slide player, but that's another video I had. I had some good slide players video and I, I never really bothered to get good at it, but it's, it's good enough.
2: Too short, but the days are so long. Living with sick people makes me feel so strong.
1: That's where ideas for songs come from, is from other songs often. When you hear something you like, you can either cover it or you can steal from it, both are valid. Both have been valid anyway. We're getting into scary times now because things are getting very litigious. Going after hit songs, you know, trying to sue people for similarities, things that in the past I think you would just say, well, that's nothing, whatever, that's just common. But I feel like after the the success, uh, the lawsuit against Robin Thicke over Blurred Lines, and the Tom Petty uh, getting the publishing from Sam Smith for... What I think is really nothing. I, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's getting scary now. But so, yeah, by studying, uh, that's where ideas come from. They don't just come out in a vacuum. Lyrically, too. If the war is over
2: And the monsters have won If the war is over I'm gonna have some fun The sun peeks in On an afternoon drunk All the green, green bottles But it won't
1: last forever Kalamazoo is another drinking song. It's about drinking in the daytime, I think. I can sing drinking songs because I've never really had a problem. When it comes to, to drink and drugs, there's two kinds of people. Some people have a, a go button and a stop button. I know I do. Like, I can stop when it makes sense to stop. I can look at the clock and be like, oh, it's 4 o'clock, I'm going to stop. But other people only have the go button. They just go, go, go. We used to have fun. We had some late nights, but um, it, it never uh, was destructive or, or dangerous. Not to any of us in the band. I guess I've seen other people's lives fall apart subsequently take a turn, but not ours. Our A&R guy, Terry Tolkien, who Chinatown is about, by the next record, Pop Tent, he was gone. He was a great music fan. It didn't function very well in the, in the corporate environment of, of Electro records, I think. And yeah, he used to, <laughs> he would, you know, he, he would smoke a lot of weed, whatever. He'd do all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff, which they generally tolerated. But they would tolerate it more if you had a hit record. Hedgehog, which was picked to be a single from this record, even though I think it's probably the weakest song. But these were the grungiers, and that was the grungiest sounding song. So I think that when they go to the alternative radio department and they're like, Is there anything here that could get played on the radio. They said Hedgehog. It did not get played on the radio. You can't fool people. We were not a grunge band. A
2: fox or a Hedgehog.
1: When they're trying to get you played on the radio, you're competing against a lot of other people trying to get it on the radio from other labels. And you're competing against bands on your own label. And um, if they're, you know, got a meeting over at MTV and they're like, well, we've got the Better Than Ezra record or this Third Eye Blind. You know, they, they, I don't know. They were take off, They were doing well. We are always being told by the label, like, we need to come up with a hit song. But it's like, if you don't do it, you know, the band will get dropped. And... But we didn't get dropped. and we made another record. But then finally, on the fifth record, it, it finally came true. <laughs> That's okay. I know we were signed to a major label, and they are in the business of having hit records. And this is why I don't get, you know, we can get angry when we get dropped or anything. Because you can sort of understand that. They're not doing it just for fun, and they're not interested in putting out a record that... Just sold 100,000 copies. Nowadays, this would be an enormous success, actually, sales-wise. But back then, they've got a big office. They want to make records that sell millions, and that's the business they're in. I don't think I ever really believed that that was going to happen for Luna. I don't know. I think I have kind of a a strange voice and, you know, we didn't spend time, we didn't didn't listen to alternative radio or modern rock radio. We just tried to write the best song we could each time, make each song the best it was, but we didn't think about writing hits. We wouldn't know how to do it, you know. And I think this record has aged really well because it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, it sounds like Luna doing their own thing. It doesn't sound like ten other grunge bands where the, the vocals and drums are the really loud thing. Hedgehog refers, uh, there's a line in there, are you a fox or a hedgehog, which people think is, is from a Woody Allen movie, and he, he does mention it, but it's, it's actually from an, an essay by Isaiah Berlin about Tolstoy and his theory. I think he's really just having fun. He didn't mean it to be taken that seriously, that there's two kinds of writers or artists. There are hedgehogs and there are foxes. The fox is, has wider ranging knowledge, knows all kinds of things, whereas the hedgehog only knows one thing, that they do very well. So I'm definitely not a fox. I would say, if I'm lucky, I'm I'm a hedgehog. But you have to decide. And his his theory was that Tolstoy couldn't decide if he was a hedgehog or a fox, and that this contradiction drove him crazy. I don't know. (laughs) Freakin' and Peakin', that sounds like another drinking song, drugging song, I guess it is. It's about staying up, having taken too much of something. We did take ecstasy now and then, and that's, so that's what, if Freakin' and Peakin' seems to be about a drug, that's probably what it's about. Pat went and mastered it and came back, and we all took E and listened to it. And maybe that's a cheat, but, because it makes you feel good about yourself and about the music, but you know what, some music sounds good on ecstasy and some does not. And I think... uh there's a lot of sort of sparkle in this record and it sounds good that way.
2: Give me an answer, wrap it up. up to the-
1: Freakin' and Peakin' is in this tuning of, that's um, in the Keith Richards, well, the, the tuning that he used a lot, the slack key, it's sort of a G slash D. It's an open G, I guess, but it's slack because it tunes everything down a little bit. And he was probably taught this by Graham Parsons or something. Once he discovered that, a lot of the Stones hits are written with that because it, it just lends a certain flavor to the chords. Freakin' and Peakin'. Stanley plays great on that. Great drum track. I don't think we knew what was going to be the album closer, but looking at that, that's a pretty obvious one to be the album closer. And I think Freaking and peeking that was the one song where Pat's like "Ah, this is just like you guys just jamming <laughs> we do that sometimes we don't get too annoying we try and stick with the groove and it's not about virtuosity it's about yeah maintaining the groove hopefully generally we knew, we knew the structure of the songs just often the lyrics weren't written but we well I guess these long ones we don't actually know exactly how long they're going to go on for it just kind of we let it rip and see what happens. We have some idea of where it's going, but now we know. Now we know exactly where they're going. <laughs> now there's a map that we can go go back and listen to the record and be like, okay, it builds up here, and then it goes to quiet. And then... it was a good time to be in Luna. We were having fun, I think. I mean, not that there weren't some struggles in the making of this record, and was it a little more difficult than we anticipated it, but but yeah, I guess we took like, uh, I'd say this record took seven weeks to make, which was certainly the longest I had ever spent making a record, but that's you know nothing compared to some other people. And when you're signed to a multi-record deal at a major label, it's sort of it's, it's this impetus, I suppose, to get off the road and you're like, okay we better make a a record so we can get paid again. So so there's good and bad in that. It's not a terribly good reason to make a record, but on the other hand, actually, it is a good reason to make a record. It's pretty understandable. And like I say, it gets you working. Well, Penthouse remains my, my favorite lunar record. It's unusual that you hear a, a record that works from beginning to end, and I think this one does. It just kind of casts a spell and maintains this mood from track one through track ten. Oftentimes, it's just like two interesting songs and a bunch of filler, but um, I think this one, Penthouse, really captured us at our best.
0: Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Luna. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase Penthouse. Thanks for listening.